From National Public Radio, it's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Criticism continues over George W. Bush's decision not to regulate global warming carbon dioxide gases. Some say the about face on the campaign promise is a major domestic and foreign policy gaffe. There's been a great deal of press about how smooth the transition has been and how much control and command the president already has of the government and so forth. And frankly, this is a very big sign that uh, a lot of that really isn't true. Also, we look at the promise of what's being called clean coal and art and politics in the animal world and a chimp whose paintings fooled the experts. If you look at these paintings, they're actually quite beautiful and there's a lot of good composition. And it's only after it came out that it was a chimpanzee that the critics all had reasons why they had believed that this was a grand master of painting instead of a chimpanzee. That and more this week on Living on Earth, right after this. This is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Fallout over President Bush's decision to renege on a campaign promise to regulate carbon dioxide continues with major repercussions at home and abroad. Now, you'd expect environmental advocates to call the move a capitulation to the coal industry and climate change skeptics. But it's also straining fault lines in the Republican Party. Several moderate Republicans have joined Democrats in filing a bill to regulate CO2. They are also privately calling the president's action a betrayal of EPA chief and moderate Republican Christine Todd Whitman, who'd been instructed by the White House to pledge CO2 caps at a meeting of G8 environmental ministers in Trieste, Italy, just a few weeks ago. It's no surprise, then, that some allies are saying the U.S. can't be trusted at the bargaining table. With me now is Philip Clapp, president of the National Environmental Trust. Hello, sir. Hi, Steve. What happens next? Let's look at the domestic side of this. What happens to carbon dioxide? There's no question that there's going to be a major debate on cleaning up dirty coal-fired power plants uh, in this Congress. And I think there are many members of Congress who would like to pass that kind of legislation by the end of 2002, before the 2002 elections, where the environment, many of them anticipate, will be an issue. Are the Republicans going to be able to work out a compromise here, or is, is the split just simply going to stay there? I think there's going to have to be a compromise, and I think it's likely to happen you know, over the next 18 months as, as the legislation is completed because I think that the Bush administration itself will want to pass power plant legislation that does clean up conventional air pollutants, the things that cause urban air pollution. And that focuses the debate squarely on what are we going to do about the additional air pollution that causes global warming. And the Bush administration is going to have to come to some compromises on that. Internationally, the Japanese are saying that Mr. Bush's decision is regrettable. The European Union has officially expressed concern. What does this mean for the climate change negotiations? The talks that will go on uh, in uh, Bonn in July, which are the next resumption of the climate change negotiations, are likely to be much more difficult for the Bush administration because of this. Uh, The Europeans very clearly feel that they were lied to. And uh, the administration has to come forward with something that will give them some reason to believe that they are can be trusted as negotiating partners. And remember that the Bush administration has many other agendas with the Europeans, among them getting agreement to a U.S. missile defense shield, getting the Europeans to assume more responsibility for their own defense. And climate change is such a huge issue in Europe that there are political reasons for those own governments why they have to have the Bush administration moving on this. And the timing, another interesting point here is that the timing puts a particular spotlight on it. The negotiations in Bonn take place in the middle two weeks in July. 
in the weekend that comes in the middle of those negotiations, the G8 summit, President Bush's first meeting with European heads of state, occurs in Genoa. So the entire focus of the, not only the climate change negotiations, but the G8 summit will be on the U.S. position on climate change. Just before this meeting in Trieste, uh, the British Prime Minister, Tony Blair, met privately with George Bush up at Camp David. What information do you have about how the British government in particular is responding to this move? At Camp David, apparently, Prime Minister Blair raised the issue and received assurances from the president that the United States intended to be constructively engaged in Kyoto Protocol negotiations, despite his the president's concerns about the structure of the treaty and other issues, but that the attempt would be to create a structure that the United States, too, could ratify. And the president now casting aspersions on the science, caving in and saying that carbon dioxide is not an air pollutant. All of these things are completely at odds with that, and uh, the British were quite shocked. And furious? I think so. Uh, it came at a very bad time for the prime minister because they have an election campaign going on in Britain. And a bipartisan committee of the parliament recently uh, criticized the prime minister for inaction on climate change and other environmental issues, which led him to do such things as cancel a major economic speech, which is usually the most important thing to talk about in the middle of, a, of an election, and reschedule it to be an environmental speech, which heavily focused on global warming. So here's Tony Blair on the hot seat in Britain, politically on environmental issues, and he gets seriously undercut by the Bush administration. What do you think will happen in the future in a similar case like this? How responsive do you think uh, the president is going to be when industry calls in? Well, that's the most disturbing thing about this, uh, is that industry was able to push the panic button very fast and very hard on this administration, even when the president was very publicly out on a limb and very clearly committed to something. What's next? That's not quite clear yet. Uh, the Bush administration clearly is in complete disarray on its carbon policy and on its climate change policy. There's been a great deal of press about how smooth the transition has been and how much control and command the president already has of the government and so forth. And frankly, this is a very big sign that uh, a lot of that really isn't true. Philip Clapp is president of the National Environmental Trust in Washington, D.C. Thank you, sir, for taking this time. Thank you, Steve. By backing away from carbon dioxide limits, President Bush has given a big boost to the nation's coal industry. Coal generates up to three times as much CO2 as other fossil fuels, so coal has a lot to lose. It could cost the industry millions to meet tough carbon dioxide restrictions, but the technology is being developed. The president's budget calls for large investments in so-called clean coal. The proposal has broad support, but critics say clean coal is an oxymoron and a waste of money. West Virginia Public Radio's Jeff Young reports. The National Energy Technology Laboratory is the largest fossil energy research organization in the country. Most of the Department of Energy's money for fossil fuel research flows through here. And there may soon be a multi-billion dollar boost for projects like this one at the lab's Morgantown, West Virginia facility. In this experiment, technicians burn fuel at different temperatures to find the point when combustion causes problems. We don't want to hear this because this can be potentially very harmful to the equipment that's worth millions and billions of dollars. The Clean Coal Technology Program here aims to increase the efficiency of coal-burning power plants and to reduce coal's notorious pollutants. Carl Bauer is the lab's associate director. Bauer says the program has helped dramatically cut acid rain and smog-causing sulfur and nitrogen emissions, while coal consumption doubled. 
He says soot from power plants shrank to microns in size while power plant efficiency increased. And Bauer sees big advances on the horizon. We have the goal of re increasing efficiencies from today's state-of-the-art of around 40% for coal-fired power to about 60% efficiencies and also towards the uh, 2015 and later time frame having the ability to have an almost zero emissions plant. Call it the holy grail of clean coal research, a coal-fired power plant with virtually no air pollutants and no contributions to the greenhouse gases implicated in global climate change. Again, Carl Bauer. We are also uh, working in over the last two years at a, at a very uh, laboratory scale manner right now at looking at using the natural process by which CO2 is absorbed by olivine and serpentine and minerals of their type to form a natural carbonate that is nature's way of dealing with CO2 uh, by making a different form of stone. That brings the time frame down from thousands of years to less than a half an hour. Clean coal was the brainchild of West Virginia's powerful senior senator Robert Byrd. In the early 80s, acid rain concerns threatened his state's coal industry. As then head of the Senate Appropriations Committee, Byrd set aside some $2 billion for development of cleaner burning coal. That was matched by state government and private industry spending for a total of more than $5 billion. But in the 90s, electric utilities weren't building coal-fired plants. They were investing instead in turbines powered by cleaner burning natural gas. The search for clean coal seemed on the decline. Then two things changed. Natural gas prices skyrocketed, and a friend of the coal industry found his way to the White House. Coal is going to help energize America. And that requires clean coal technologies to make sure the good folks of this state can find work. On the campaign trail in West Virginia, George W. Bush pledged $2 billion in clean coal investment over 10 years. This month, Bush's energy secretary, Spencer Abraham, visited the national lab to say the president will keep his promise. So today I am here to announce a down payment on that commitment, with next year's budget providing $150 million new dollars for clean coal technology. In Congress, Senators Byrd, Mitch McConnell of Kentucky, and Frank Murkowski of Alaska also proposed spending a billion dollars on clean coal research and tax incentives to power plants adopting the new coal technology. Opponents call it an environmentally harmful waste of money. The idea that coal can ever be made clean is a myth. That's Lexi Schultz, an attorney with the U.S. Public Interest Research Group. Schultz says after 17 years of the program, coal is still our dirtiest fuel, while research into cleaner fuels is lagging. Every dollar that we spend on the clean coal technology program, that's a dollar that can't be spent on technologies that are truly clean and, and will provide a long-term sustainable energy uh, program. And I'm talking about things like solar power, wind power, both of which are emerging technologies that could really use an, an, an fusion of taxpayer dollars to support their research. And no matter how cleanly coal might be made to burn, it still must be mined. Coal mining scars thousands of acres and pollutes hundreds of miles of streams in West Virginia, Montana, and other coal-producing states. Environmentalists aren't clean coal's only critics. Some budget-minded members of Congress and watchdog groups regularly target the program for elimination. Sina Swisher of the group Taxpayers for Common Sense says reports from the government's General Accounting Office show why. 
the Clean Coal Technology Program is probably one of the most wasteful programs that both the GAO and we have come across in recent years, but we're still throwing hundreds of millions of dollars into this program year after year, and it hasn't gotten us anywhere. Renewed interest has rekindled the clean coal debate just as the country nears some big decisions about energy. A working group led by Vice President Cheney will make recommendations soon for a comprehensive national energy policy, and clean coal technology is expected to be included. For Living on Earth, I'm Jeff Young in Morgantown, West Virginia. Coming up, cultured animals. Stay tuned to Living on Earth. Now this health update with Diane Toomey. Think of the household allergens that trigger asthma and you probably think of cat dander. But several studies show children who live with a cat have a much smaller than expected chance of developing the condition. New research may show why. The study looked at a group of more than 200 children. Researchers measured the amount of cat allergen in their household dust. And then they tested the children's blood for antibodies produced in response to allergens. One of these antibodies, immunoglobulin E, can trigger asthma. Researchers found that children who were exposed to lots of cat dander, and it did have to be a lot, did not produce immunoglobulin E in their blood as a result. But living with a cat won't protect you from developing asthma since there are many triggers for the condition. And the authors say asthmatic children with confirmed cat allergies should continue to avoid fluffy. And that's this week's health update. I'm Diane Toomey. And you're listening to Living on Earth. It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Now, the ape and the sushi master may sound like the name of the latest Japanimation superhero Saturday morning cartoon adventure, or perhaps an animal rendition of Zen philosophy. But it's the title of a new book, which explores how animals develop their own distinct cultures and even political hierarchies, not all that different from the way we humans create ours. Franz de Waal, a professor of primate behavior at Emory University, is the author of the book, and he joins me now. Dr. DeWall, welcome to Living on Earth. Yeah, I'm glad to be here. Now, you write in your book that uh, animals such as apes develop their own traditions and cultures in much the same way as an apprentice learns from the sushi master. How's that? The apprentice hangs around the master, cleans the dishes, bows to the clients, um, does all sorts of tedious work, but is not allowed to touch the sushi and only can watch what the sushi master is doing for a couple of years 
And after a three-year period, they're supposed to make the sushi based on their observations and to do it correctly. And so it's a transmission of knowledge by observation, and that's what the whole book is really about. The whole book is about culture in animals and culture in humans and how that's based on seeing others do something and copying their behavior. And so, for example, uh, in chimpanzees, we don't only have sort of single traditions, but we also have entire sets of traditions. And as soon as you get an entire set of 39 different patterns uh, that varies across chimpanzee groups, we can start to talk about uh, cultures. There must have been some point in, in your life or in your work with animals that your own perception of what is culture changed. Can you tell me what brought about this change in your thinking? Well, I think um, the first time I heard people talk about animal culture uh, was in the 60s, and it was at that time uh, was a very obscure concept. Uh, I think in the West we had a sort of hang-up about culture in the sense that culture was introduced to us as something that set us apart from animals, whereas uh, the Eastern primatologists introduced it to us as something that connects us to animals, actually. And so I think, for me, there was a, a major change in my thinking about it in the sense that once you get the idea that animals can have culture and that you should be looking for the transmission of knowledge and habits, you're going to see it everywhere. How would you define culture? Well, I define culture as a set of characteristics of um, a group of animals of a particular species that is different from the characteristics of other groups. And they have come about not because you are genetically different, but because you have different learning histories. And so um, animals copy behavior from each other or learn it otherwise. And so there's a social transmission of behavior, which makes that sometimes you find one group of chimpanzees, so to speak, who cracks nuts with stones, and another group of chimpanzees that has nuts and has stones in the forest, but is not doing anything with them. And so they, they have not developed a nutcracking culture, for example. Some animals might even be too good at what they do. How's that? This relates to the issue of the tea par- the old tea parties that they used with chimpanzees and other apes in the zoo. They would teach them to sit around a table and to drink tea and to use uh, cutlery and stuff like that. And this impressed people very much. Uh, on the other hand, they were also supposed to fail. We, we were not very happy if they did it perfectly. And there's some good documentation that uh, if you had a group of chimps who was too good at drinking from teacups they would teach them very soon to drop the cup or to spill the tea or because we did not allow them to be the, the perfect imitators of us. They had to be the imperfect ones because these tea parties were partly designed to confirm to us, the human observer, that they could not do really the cultural things that we do. And the most amusing case was Congo, the painting ape in the 1950s, who was um, a chimpanzee who belonged to Desmond Morris. And Desmond Morris sent some of the paintings of Congo to a Parisian gallery who specialized in abstract art under a different name, not saying that it came from a chimpanzee, and it got rave reviews. It was actually, if you look at these paintings, they're actually quite beautiful, and there's a lot of good composition and color composition in the paintings of Congo. And it's only after it came out that it was a chimpanzee that the critics all had reasons why they had believed, and so they sort of justified their mistaken belief that this was a grandmaster of painting instead of a chimpanzee. Okay, now let's turn to politics. You say in your book that politics come into play in the animal world. How's that? I have worked on politics in chimpanzees, and these studies I started in the 70s where I worked on alliances and coalitions. And a coalition is basically that two individuals defeat a third party. 
And so, for example, uh, let's say you are the highest-ranking male in my group of chimpanzees, and I cannot defeat you on my own, but I can make a contract, so to speak, not a written contract, but I can have a buddy, and the two of us can defeat you. And when that happens, then afterwards I need to give my buddy a lot of benefits. Let's say I become the new alpha male, the highest-ranking male. Uh, I can only do that if my buddy is also happy with that position that he has. And so I have to give certain sexual privileges that I have obtained or other privileges to that partner. Uh, so it's a very complex sort of transactional deal-making uh, that's going on among chimpanzees. And, and when I wrote Chimpanzee Politics, which is quite a while ago, 10 years later, Newt Gingrich, the recommended it to the Congress, and so I, at least here we had a politician who saw the connections between uh, their own behavior and chimpanzee behavior, and I've heard from many people that in corporations and in, in politics, you see many of these same patterns of coalition formation, divide and rule strategies, grooming up the hierarchy, grooming the ones who you hope to get benefits from, and so on. You see that sort of same mechanism that I saw in the chimpanzees. I'm wondering if you perceive a danger in not recognizing animal culture, and if you do, how this would affect us. I I think there would be a great risk to that in the sense that um, there is a tendency for people to look at animals as a sort of little machines. And uh, I think the culture issue, it opens up a very new way of looking at animals that brings animals in a way much closer to us, but also confuses the picture in the sense that you cannot anymore say like uh, chimpanzees act like such and such because now you have to say the chimpanzees in Thai forest act like such and such but the chimpanzees in Gombe act like such and such and so if you show for example to field workers videos of chimpanzees they can see from the video where this video was taken in the same way that you can show me videos of, let's say, Europeans at work, and I can tell you whether this was taken in France or in Germany on the basis of the way they dress, the way they talk, the way they act in many ways. And so that same sort of variability that we see among human cultures, we can see in animal cultures. Then what do you think might humans not share with animals? What, what could separate us from the rest of the animal kingdom? You could mention um, our symbolic languages, which I think is a unique characteristic of us. But even if you take language, you can probably break it down into a number of different characteristics, some of which are not beyond other animals. And so, for example, language involves syntax and use of symbols and classification of objects and concepts involved in that. And some of these elements, not all of them, can be found in other animals. But, you know, uh, as, as soon as you start looking closer at everything that you think sets us apart, there's big holes in there. And so we are basically animals, and um, we are cultural creatures by our very nature. We, are, we have evolved to be cultural creatures. And all we do with culture is adding some layer of variation to our behavior, which is a very interesting layer, but is only one of the many that we have. Franz de Waal is professor of primate behavior at Emory University and author of the book The Ape and the Sushi Master. Professor de Waal, thanks so much for joining us today. You're welcome.
Funding for Living on Earth comes from the World Media Foundation Environmental Information Fund. Major contributors include the National Science Foundation, supporting environmental education, the Educational Foundation of America for reporting on energy and climate change, the David and Lucille Packard Foundation for reporting on marine issues and the environment, the Geraldine R. Dodge Foundation, and the Town Creek Foundation. It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood, and this is NPR, National Public Radio. When we return, the thirst for fresh water touches many, including Source Perrier. Stay tuned to Living on Earth. It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. On the 16th day of every March, folks in Hood River County, Oregon, don green and purple colors, throw a parade, and yell Finnish chants about grasshoppers, all in honor of St. Earl Ho. According to legend, St. Earl Ho saved the vineyards of Finland from a plague of giant grasshoppers. He banished the bugs with a pitchfork and a few choice words, and so became forever endeared to the Finnish people. Now, if the story sounds a little too reminiscent of St. Patrick driving the snakes from Ireland, there's a reason. St. Earl Ho is actually a fabrication of a Finnish store manager in Minnesota. It seems back in 1956, while taunting his Irish buddies at a party, he invented Earl Ho, the Finnish banisher of poisonous frogs. A co-worker wrote an ode describing how the saint got his strength from fish soup and sour milk. Other locals got in on the action, and soon the frogs became grasshoppers, and the joke became an unofficial holiday. Despite his humble beginnings, St. Earl Ho's fame has spread far and wide. A 12-foot statue of the saint stands along the highway in Monaga, Minnesota. There's even a St. Earl Ho's pub in Helsinki. And taking after the St. Patty's tradition of green beer, purple beer is often imbibed in honor of the fictitious Finnish saint. But if purple beer is unappealing, you can always try the holiday's high-test version. Mix equal parts green creme de menthe, white creme de cacao, and light cream to get, what else, a grasshopper. And for this week, that's the Living on Earth Almanac. Millions of gallons of pure spring water are at the center of a dispute in the town of New Haven, Wisconsin. The international bottler Perrier wants to build a plant in the town. But local residents wonder if the water Perrier would tap would damage the local aquifer. So some folks want the company to drop its plans. But Perrier says it won't leave unless scientific studies prove its operations would cause environmental damage. Gil Halstead reports. Picture this. By an old mill pond down a rural road, a tiny well sits under a red-pitched roof. Clear, cold water pours out of a pipe into a metal can. Local residents are fighting a plan to pump 500 gallons a minute from the aquifer that feeds the spring this rustic well depends on. Perrier already has a conditional permit to drill 200 feet into the aquifer and install a high-capacity pump. The pump would run year-round, filling plastic bottles bearing the Ice Mountain spring water label. That's the sound of a high-powered diesel pump sucking a 1,000 gallons a minute from the aquifer beneath New Haven. 
In November, the company ran a test using a rate twice what the bottling plant would need for normal operations, so they could learn more about the hydrogeology of the region. Hydrogeologist Bob Nauda conducted that test for the company. We're stressing the aquifer to make it have some impacts. We use those impacts to calculate aquifer properties, things like its permeability, its ability to transmit water, but it's also its ability to store water. And then that information will be used for the groundwater modeling that will continue after this is done. Results of the modeling are due later this month and should predict whether extracting the water will pose a significant environmental threat. The flow of one local stream dropped by 45 percent during the test, making it dangerously shallow in an area crucial for trout spawning. But the company says the test was meant to stress the aquifer and didn't damage it permanently. Bob Nauda says there are 150 billion gallons of water in the local aquifer. Perrier spokesperson Jane Lasgen says the scientific studies Perrier has carried out should convince opponents the bottling plant won't harm the aquifer. We've done our level best and really gone to every length to satisfy people's questions about the environment, and we continue to do that. Sales of bottled water have tripled nationwide in the past decade, and Lasgen says Perrier needs new plants in the Midwest to fuel that growing demand. People are rediscovering water again. It basically quenches one's thirst in the most simple and basic and best of ways. Bottled spring water is a $5 billion a year industry in the United States, and Perrier controls a little less than a third of the U.S. market. The company sells water under the labels Deer Park, Poland Spring, and Calistoga, in addition to Ice Mountain, and operates bottling plants in Pennsylvania, Texas, Florida, and Maine. But Perrier's plans for a Midwest expansion have met with strong opposition. Last spring, local citizens and fishing groups blocked a plan to build a plant near the headwaters of one of the state's most popular trout streams, near McCann Springs, about 30 miles southwest of New Haven. And when the company began drilling test wells near the spring in New Haven, local residents held a series of protest rallies. And let's join hands and let's chase Perrier out with Keep the water in the country, come on! In a meeting last June, Perrier went to great lengths to assure residents that the company's high-capacity wells would not dry up their wells or damage streams or wetlands. But local residents, like Mike Flannery, weren't convinced. When they start sucking water out of that hole, it's going to pull water from other areas towards that area. I mean, we got enough water coming out of the ground right, right now. I mean, they're spraying it on potato fields all over the place, but it's getting back in the system. This water they're taking out of here is going to go on a truck. There ain't no way it's ever going to get back in our ground. I'll never drink it. Flannery fears Perrier's pumping could cause permanent damage to the aquifer and eventually lead to water rationing. Other local residents oppose the plant because of the round-the-clock truck traffic it will bring to what is now a quiet farming community. One study predicts there will be 200 trucks going to and from the bottling plant once it begins operating. In a local referendum, voters rejected Perrier's plans in New Haven by an overwhelming majority. A citizens group has filed a lawsuit calling for an injunction against Perrier for violating local zoning laws. Another citizens group has filed a suit calling for more comprehensive environmental studies before the plant is built. But there are some in the area who would welcome the new industry, Perry has offered to buy Terry Anderson's hog farm as a site for the bottling plant. As a result, Anderson says he's had threatening phone calls from neighbors and some minor vandalism on his property. Still, he insists the bottling plant would be good for the entire community. It's a clean industry, and we need progress here. We're one of the poorest counties in the state. There's so much water there and the quality that uh, even if Perry had backed out, whoever's number two will be there in the blink of an eye. 
There's a bill now in the state legislature that would require an environmental impact statement for future high-capacity wells used by water bottling plants. The bill has strong bipartisan support and may come up for a vote by the end of March, just about the same time Perrier is expected to release results of the computer modeling on its pump tests. Meanwhile, Perrier is fighting a similar battle with citizens groups in Michigan over proposed bottling plants there. For Living on Earth, I'm Gil Halstead in New Haven, Wisconsin. Just ahead, crime, but no punishment so far. The attackers of the giant redwood Luna are still at large. Stay tuned to Living on Earth. Now this environmental business update with Anna Solomon Greenbaum. The high-tech industry is often thought of as white-glove clean, but making the chips to run computers produces millions of tons of chemicals called perfluorocompounds, or PFCs. The Environmental Protection Agency calls PFCs the most potent and persistent of all global warming gases. And now, leading computer chip makers are volunteering to reduce their emissions of the chemicals. The Semiconductor Industry Association pledged to cut PFCs by 10 percent below 1995 levels before the end of the decade. The EPA says this would be similar in effect to taking 12 million cars off the road. U.S. companies produce more than half the world's computer chips. Manufacturers in Asia and Europe have also committed to reduce their output of the chemicals. That's this week's business update. I'm Anna Solomon-Greenbaum. And you're listening to Living on Earth. You can hear our program anytime on our website. The address is www.loe.org. That's www.loe.org. And while you're online, send your comments to us at letters at LOE.org. Once again, letters at LOE.org. Our postal address is 8 Story Street, Cambridge, Massachusetts, 02138. And you can reach our listener line at 800-218-9988. That's 800-218-9988. CDs, tapes, and transcripts are $15. It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. The Pacific Lumber Company in Northern California and people from the town of Stafford have reached a settlement in a long-standing dispute. Residents say the company overlogged the mountain above their homes and caused a landslide which buried much of their town in debris. Mike O'Neill was at home New Year's Eve morning in 1996 when the disaster struck. This thing was like a tidal wave, a tsunami of stumps and trees. And uh, a redwood stump is as big as a, a Peterbilt or a Mack tractor. And they were floating on top of this flow, just like marshmallows. No one was hurt in the slide, but eight homes were destroyed. Mike O'Neill and his neighbors sued Pacific Lumber, but he says the company claimed the damage wasn't its fault. Their position was, well, it was an act of God. And uh, that we just kind of found that to be very profound and... You know, and then they say, well, it was the rain. And it says, well, you know, 
Humboldt County has always had rain. This is nothing new. And it got worse. They turned around after we pressured them about uh, resolution to the problem. They turned around and said it was our fault. And in, in total shock, we said, well, how could it possibly be our fault? Well, it's your fault for living there. So, so what did you want? I tried for nine months to deal with the company just so we can get a simple buyout. We truly tried to work with the company. But, you know, this turns out where we had to sue them and we had to bring them to this point of, of where they decided to fold. And really, it's all sad because we didn't want this. This was not our intention when we started this. You reached a settlement with the company last week. What was the outcome? Well, the outcome was we won our case. We brought enough information to the table that, in our opinion, it frightened Pacific Lumber to the point where they were willing to settle out of court rather than bring our evidence to the table. And how did they fold their cards? Well, by giving us uh, a settlement of $3.3 million. Pacific Lumber says that they admit no wrongdoing in this settlement and that they sincerely, and I'm quoting from them, sincerely look forward to renewing good neighborly relations with everyone involved in this unfortunate incident. Here, here's my response to that. If they were so pure at heart, why didn't they go through the trial? Why did they give us $3.3 million? And quite frankly, we don't trust them anymore. None of us believe them anymore. Um, before you go, just tell me briefly, what does it look like there now? Well, it's kind of like losing an arm. You know, if you knew that there was kids playing out and you got friends and houses and stuff, and all of a sudden one day it's completely gone. It's like part of our town died. And uh, they've done a lot of cleanup and stuff, but the homes are missing. You know, I mean, there's still kids' toys stuck in the mud. And, well, it's 17 feet deep of stumps and, and muck and, and rocks and stumps, and it's just a little bit like having lived or still living in a war zone because the mountain itself is not stable above us, and they have admitted it. We know it for a fact that there's more material yet to come. On a ridge about a quarter mile up the mountain from Mike O'Neill's home is a thousand-year-old redwood tree called Luna. The tree got its name from Julia Butterfly Hill, a woman who lived on a tiny platform near the top of the giant tree for 738 days. She was protesting the logging of ancient redwoods in the Pacific Northwest. In a deal with Pacific Lumber, Ms. Hill ended her tree sit and paid the company $50,000 to protect Luna and a swath of land around it. But it appears that was not enough. Late last year, someone with a chainsaw sliced a 32-inch deep gash halfway around the tree's trunk. Living on Earth's Mark Hertzgard visited Northern California to investigate the crime and the future of old-growth logging. We're 3,000 feet up, about 10 miles from the coast. The winds coming in are really, really strong. They rip tarps right off. His code name is Spiral. His fellow activists have names like Dragonfly and Guano. Music pours from the speakers of an old van as they pack warm clothes and food before an all-night hike into the Matoll Free State, a blockade on Pacific lumber land near California's rugged, lost coast. I mean, there's usually between 20 and 30 kids in the woods. Feeding 30 people is a lot of food, especially when you have to hike it in, 14 miles. Spiral's colleague Josh Brown of Earth First claims the blockade has prevented Pacific lumber from logging 3,000 acres of ancient Douglas fir trees since last November. Well, if there was one good thing about Luna being cut, it woke people up to the fact that the problems with the old-growth forest up here on the north coast are not over and that we needed to wake up and get reinvolved. 
At Pacific Lumber's factory in Scotia, a worker outside the gate won't give his name, only his opinions. He says environmentalists will seize on any excuse to stop logging. First it was a bird, and then if that wouldn't have worked, they'd have found some lizard or something, you know. And then if that wouldn't have worked, they'd have found a bug of some kind that we had to protect. Just a bunch of radicals, I think. Humboldt County has been ground zero in California's timber wars for over a decade. There has been violence before. A car bombing in Oakland of activist Judy Berry and Daryl Cheney. Police swabbing pepper spray into the eyes of nonviolent protesters. Activist David Chain killed by a felled tree. Julia Butterfly Hill has her own suspicions of the kind of person who was behind the Luna attack. Whoever did this is someone who is frustrated and angry and most of all afraid. And you apply enough pressure to anything and it explodes. Hill is sitting in her Circle of Life Foundation office, sipping unfiltered juice from a mason jar. Reggae posters cover the walls. A dog named Mango relaxes at her feet. The whole entire West Coast is filled with ghost towns of timber companies and other extractive industry that have come in, promised wealth and gold, and rape the beauty, rape the community, and leave it with nothing. Environmental activists are the easy scapegoat. Back at Pacific Lumber, the factory worker says he's sure a timberman didn't cut Luna. Otherwise, that tree would be down right now, not hanging there half cut. The environmentalists probably cut it just to make this place look bad. Should have been cut years ago, made into lumber. Just down the road from Pacific Lumber, if you look carefully, you can see Luna from Highway 101. But hiking up there unaided is nearly impossible. Even with guidance, the climb takes over an hour through clear-cut zones where wisps of smoke rise from soil burned black and bare for replanting. Over a last hill looms Luna, near the top of a sharply sloped canyon. Stepping close, you can trace the cut across its trunk. Large metal buckles now straddle the gash like stitches, and cables stretch from upper branches to the ground. Arborists hope, but can't promise, that these measures will keep the tree from tipping over in 80-mile-an-hour winter winds. The criminal left behind neither foot nor fingerprints, but there were wood shavings, says Detective Juan Freeman of the Humboldt County Sheriff's Office. What, I, what my goal would be to be potentially to compare those shavings to uh, some shavings in a particular chainsaw that may have been involved in the actual cutting of the tree. Freeman says he hasn't asked Pacific Lumber for anything beyond a single visit to the crime scene, yet he praises the company for its cooperation. But he hasn't questioned the tree's owner, Julia Butterfly Hill. And why not? For one thing, I don't know where she is or, or anything, and I don't really have time to, to hunt her down and try to get an interview from her. If she were to contact me here, I'd be happy to talk to her. Thousands of people from all over the world contact me on a daily basis, so if a detective can't find me, I'm a bit concerned about his ability to find who attacked Luna. Hill and her supporters expect little from the official investigation. So little, they've opened their own inquiry, headed by environmental attorney Mark Harris. Harris says there's a 10-year history of collusion between the Sheriff's Department and Pacific Lumber, with employees going back and forth between the two outfits. We have Pacific Lumber employees who are deputized on the spot by our public 
sheriff officials who then climb up in trees and wrestle and uh, apply pain compliance to uh, peaceful activists in a very, very hazardous and dangerous setting. Harris, a part-time pilot, believes the activists have lost the battle for Northern California's redwoods. He says you can see why from the air. We're coming up on the, on the edge of Headwaters Forest, and you can see there's some pretty widespread clear cuts just below us. There's a beautiful symmetry that only old growth redwood possess, and it's dead ahead of us there. You can see through this mist and fog. If you stood a pencil up next to a toothpick, that's essentially the kind of contrast that you have here. That contrast between the protected Humboldt Grove and the clear-cut acres around it is indeed stark. And it's a direct result of the Headwaters deal that Julia Butterfly Hill climbed the Luna Tree to protest. Signed in 1999 by Max Am and the governments of California and the United States, the Headwaters deal banned logging on only 7,500 of 60,000 contested acres. And it let the company log those remaining acres more aggressively than before. In effect, excusing it from the Endangered Species Act. After half an hour of viewing dozens of clear cuts, we're back on the ground, in front of the Selective Cutting Hair Salon in Scotia. Population 1200, Scotia is one of the last company towns in America. A typical bumper sticker reads, Earth first, we'll log the other planets later. Pacific Lumber still owns every building here and whistles its employees to work three times a day. Good afternoon, Pacific Lumber. John Campbell, the company's CEO, says he has only a vague idea about who might have cut the Luna tree. I think it was sort of a very um, you know, vulgar thing to do. I think it was some uh, deranged person who perhaps didn't even have a part of the debate. Local activists think the most likely suspects are Pacific Lumber workers, acting with or without management approval. They reason that the attacker almost certainly arrived by vehicle and would have to pass through locked gates to access Pacific Lumber's land. The accusation angers John Campbell. It's outrageous. I mean, we worked very hard to set the tree aside, and we worked very hard to try to save the tree after it was cut. I've heard that perhaps some within the environmental community had done it to continue the fundraising and uh, keep the issue before the public. Campbell admits his company has dramatically increased clear-cutting since Maxam's takeover. But he says this was an industry-wide switch. If you're managing your land for maximum sustained yield, which you're required to do under the Timber Productivity Act, you want your trees out in bright sunlight when they're young so that they grow vigorously and overcome the competition. Julia Butterfly Hill is the first to admit that logging in Humboldt County has only accelerated since she ended her tree sit. So what exactly has she accomplished? Hill is proud of having inspired countless people around the world to get environmentally active in their own communities, and she makes no apologies for fighting to save the scraps of Humboldt's ancient forests. When I got here in... November of 1997, we were already fighting for the scraps. 97% of what used to be here is gone. It's a sad magnifying glass of the state of affairs of our world that there's even an issue over 3%. 
It's ironic that the battle that made Hill famous ended in defeat, but the Headwaters deal is hardly her fault. And Hill rejects accusations that, no matter how many concessions timber companies and politicians offer her, enough is never enough. They've taken 97%. When is enough enough for them? Pacific Lumber's John Campbell sees it differently. If you go out here, you can see young redwoods growing everywhere. So 90% of the redwoods have not disappeared. 97% of the old growth, perhaps, has disappeared. But these are working forests. These have been uh, legislated and put in place for the growing and harvesting of trees. Paul Mason is the executive director of the Environmental Protection and Information Center. He says the real issue is not the fate of a single celebrity tree, but rather the need to change the entire approach to logging in California. Selective logging can work, says Mason, but clear-cutting destroys not only trees, but the rivers and wildlife they nourish. Salmon continued to be in a death spiral in Northern California and throughout the Pacific Northwest, and saving individual old-growth trees is not going to change that. We need a fundamentally different way of logging in these watersheds where we leave a functional forest after we've done our logging. That's the next battle. The search for the Luna Trees attacker is unlikely to end anytime soon, and neither are California's timber wars. Spiral, guano, dragonfly, and other activists will keep fighting for the Douglas fir trees in Matoll Valley, but future debate will probably not focus on ancient trees like Luna, for a simple reason. By now, Almost all of them are either protected or horizontal. For Living on Earth, I'm Mark Hertzgard. Some women sit in trees to protest clear cuts, and then there are others who take their clothes off. In today's media maelstrom, it's harder than ever to get noticed, but commentator Julia King wonders how far someone should go to be heard above the din. Around the time my mother taught me how to tie my shoes, she also taught me how to protest. Her rules were simple. Look respectable, act respectable, and don't give the opposition any ammunition. Together, we buttoned those top buttons and combed our hair for peace, civil rights, the ERA, you name it, we marched for it, in sensible shoes. Recently, a Canadian environmentalist, along with a handful of others, took a much different approach to gain media attention for her cause. She appeared topless and on horseback to stop Texada Land Corporation from old-growth logging on Salt Spring Island in British Columbia. Now a group of Salt Spring women have posed for a nudie calendar to raise money for the cause. It's activism without inhibition. Disrobe for deforestation. Pants down for preservation. But then there comes my mother's advice. Look respectable. Act respectable. Don't give the opposition any ammunition. Yet she said that decades ago, before cable TV, before the Internet, before there was so much stuff to compete with. The topless Canadian protester told reporters she has a Ph.D. and no one was listening. I take my clothes off, she said, and here you all are. And maybe she thinks people tune into the Playboy channel to hear what the bunnies have to say. Sometimes it's hard to tell the difference, but being looked at is not the same thing as being listened to. So the reporters came, and they even took notes, and they even printed the story about the threatened ecosystems and the old-growth logging. But like it or not, the real story, the one that will get repeated, is that an environmentalist went topless. I just don't get those crazy tree-huggers, Joe Public will say over his newspaper, because sometimes it's hard to see the forest for the breasts. 
Taking off your top or your bottoms might get you looked at, but will it get you listened to for the long haul? Ultimately, the battle is not for Joe and Jane Public's attention, but for their trust. And they don't trust people who go topless on Main Street. Take your umbrella, get a good night's sleep, keep your clothes on. Let's just get naked. Commentator Julia King lives in Goshen, Indiana. She comes to us from the Great Lakes Radio Consortium. Let's just get naked. It's a trip and a half. Trip and a half. And for this week, that's Living on Earth. Our story on the Luna Tree was produced by Nathan Johnson. Next week, at the time of Columbus, millions of parrots lived on the island of Puerto Rico. Today, just 13 remain in the wild. I'm a Puerto Rican, and I've never seen a Puerto Rican parrot, and that's it's pretty sad. But there's hope a new project can reintroduce captive parrots into the wild. And we'll find out how it's working next time on Living on Earth. We're produced by the World Media Foundation in cooperation with Harvard University. Our production staff includes Anna Solomon-Greenbaum, Cynthia Graber, Stephanie Pindyke, Maggie Villiger, Jennifer Chu, and James Kerwood, along with Peter Shaw, Leah Brown, Susan Shepard, Carly Ferguson, and Mylisa Munez. We had help this week from Stephen Belter. Our interns are Marav Bushland, Don Robinson, and Evie Stone. Allison Dean composed our themes. Our technical director is Dennis Foley. Liz Lempert is our Western editor. Diane Toomey is our science editor. Eileen Belinsky is our senior editor. And Chris Wallman is the senior producer of Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood, executive producer. Thanks for listening. Funding for Living on Earth comes from the World Media Foundation Environmental Information Fund. Major contributors include the Educational Foundation of America for reporting on energy and climate change, the Geraldine R. Dodge Foundation, supporting efforts to better understand environmental change, the Rockefeller Foundation, and the Turner Foundation. This is NPR, National Public Radio.